So we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 5 once again, and we're discussing the subject of how to interpret and apply the moral law of God. And by the moral law of God, I'm referring to primarily the Ten Commandments. All right, the Ten Commandments. And we want to learn to interpret and apply them according to the grace of God, rather than a legalistic, pharisaical approach to applying the law of God. That's what I believe Jesus is teaching us in Matthew chapter 5, or what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? And what Jesus is doing in the context of the Sermon on the Mount is he's discipling. And so far we've, we, we've seen that discipleship consists of two things. Your identity as a Christian, who you are, that's the Beatitudes, what a true Christian is, what he looks like in time and space, and then the second piece that Jesus is getting into in terms of Christian discipleship is how to use the moral law, okay? Now let me say this, if that's not a part of your discipleship program as a Christian, you won't grow as a Christian, okay? This morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew 25 through 26 once again. I know I covered that last week. Last week, I exegeted the text, and that just simply means I, I sought to explain my interpretation of the text. This morning, what I want to do is illustrate it. And I want to illustrate it by using other portions of Scripture to show you what this dynamic looks like, spoken of by the prophets of old, and what this dynamic looks like maybe with someone like the Apostle John, or Peter, or James. Because once you lock on to a scriptural truth or principle, it should be taught where? Everywhere in Scripture. The Scriptures are self-authenticating. Okay? We don't need to go outside of the Scriptures to validate the Scriptures. It's fine to use church history. It's fine to use commentaries and other books. But the Scriptures should validate themselves. Okay? What that means for us is I want to show you first in Scripture how this principle is taught by all the other authors, and then we're free to go outside and listen to whomever we wish. Make sense? Okay. So, um, I want to address this morning or continue our discussion on how to interpret and apply you shall not murder. <clears throat> And what we're going to do is we're going to expose, or rather we're going to look at how Jesus uses this law to expose the nature of our hearts. Okay? Now let me say this before we get into our, our teaching for this morning. See, w without the law of God, brothers and sisters, we can't detect sin. You guys realize that, right? We don't even know what sin is without God's law. What, what is covetousness? What does that look like? How do we identify that without God's law? You understand? What is adultery? What is stealing? What is lying? What are these things? What do they look like in time and space? Well, that's why God has given us his law, because by the law is the knowledge that you and I are sinners. Now, don't fear that. Don't be intimidated by that. God has good purposes in that for you. That, that law should lead you to your Savior. If you're outside of Christ, you need to hear this message. And the way I'm using the law, or the way that Lord Jesus is using the law, to expose you so you can see yourself as God sees you, the sinner for who you are. All right? And that's not to slay you. That's to give you hope. But not hope within yourself. Hope in another. Christ. And if you're a Christian this morning, we, we don't, because we're saved, we don't, we don't throw the law of God away. Right, brothers and sisters? We continue to use the law so that we can see ourselves for who we really are. And who's that? We're still sinners. We're just saved by God's grace. But we still need to understand the nature of who we are as sinners and continue to practice faith that goes out to Christ and repentance, and then faith that goes out to Christ and repentance so that we can grow as Christians. Make sense? 
<clears throat> so what I want to do this morning is to convince you from Scripture that true Christian discipleship must include a use of the moral law. Let me repeat that. True Christian discipleship must include a use of the moral law. To exclude the moral law, antinomianism, right? Or to twist God's law, legalism, like the Pharisees were doing and create your own tradition, is unhealthy for Christian discipleship. All right? What we want to do is we want to use the law of God lawfully or righteously <clears throat> to where we're growing as God intended. Okay, so the outline for this morning, and this is kind of a, an unorthodox approach this morning because I'm not actually going to be teaching the text. I'm just using it as an illustration, but <clears throat> first, excuse me. <clears throat> first, I want to further expand on this principle, that is how to use the moral law or keep the commandments of God, from the scriptures to highlight the importance and significance of proper Christian discipleship. That's what I want you guys to go away with, okay? This is a piece of proper Christian discipleship. If, you, if, if you're not doing this, you're not being discipled properly if you're a Christian, okay? The second thing I want to do is I just simply want to illustrate this through other passages of Scripture, as I said earlier, and that's what we're going to be doing this morning, effectively. And then next week, we'll move on to thou shalt not commit adultery, and I'll show you how Jesus is using that law, and so on and so forth, okay? So let's read verses 27 through 30, or 21 through 30, or I'm sorry, 21 through 26, <clears throat> and then I'll pray. And this is the Lord Jesus. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And there he's referring to the Ten Commandments under the Mosaic economy, and the Mosaic law. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And that just simply means you're guilty and you have to stand judgment. Okay? Verse 22. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you're guilty just like the person who's actually murdered someone, okay? And that should be uh, offensive, or it is offensive to a self-righteous person, right? Meaning, do we in this room actually think that because we're angry with someone without a cause, that's equivalent to somebody actually who's killing someone that we read about on the news? See the point? See, Pharisees and self-righteous people can't make that connection. They don't see themselves that way. They think, no, I'm good as long as I'm not out killing someone, actually killing them. Jesus says, no, 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 no. This stuff in your heart, and if you allow it to, to, to stay there, and you begin to develop an attitude within, amongst God's people, you're guilty. And you're in danger of the judgment, just like the person who murders that you read about in the streets. Okay? So immediately we have to face some issues here, don't we? Because I'm, I'm like, man, do I believe that about you, Lord? Do I believe that about your law? Verse 23. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry, verse 22b. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, and that's a derogatory term, which simply means the person is viewing his fellow uh, 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 Israelite as worthless. Okay? It's like me looking down upon you and making you feel like I'm better than you. Right? That's what that term Raka means. It's a derogatory term. And Jesus is saying, if you treat your brethren that way, you're in danger of the council. You're guilty. <clears throat> and then he finally he says, but whoever says you fools shall be in danger of hellfire. So three things Jesus mentioned in Jewish culture that the Israelites allowed themselves to do that Jesus says, you're guilty of violating thou shall not murder. Make sense? 
And then Jesus goes on in verses 23 to 26 to give us counsel on how to keep this commandment. Thou shalt not matter. According to the grace of God. He says this, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, and basically what he's saying there, if you bring your gift to the altar, because in Jewish culture, that's how they worship, that's a part of worship, they, they brought their gifts and so on and so forth. Jesus is saying, leave your gift there and go make things right with your brother because that's more important to who? God. Ceremony, activity, religious duty, all the external stuff, right, that the Pharisees were priding themselves in. See, Jesus is addressing the heart, right, and the attitude and the way he's applying and using the moral law of God. And that cuts, doesn't, doesn't it? It stings a little. Because now we're seeing ourselves as the who? Sinners in need of God's grace. And that's okay, brothers and sisters. That's exactly where God wants you to be. <clears throat> you and I, whether you're Christian or saved by God's grace or not, need to see yourself as a sinner before a holy and righteous God. And nobody is going to measure up to his standard of perfection apart from Jesus Christ. Amen? So we're good with that. There's no condemnation. I stand before God. You stand before God if you're saved by grace because of what Jesus has done, not because of how good or bad you are. That's the gospel, right? Because of what Christ has done. His death, burial, and resurrection to perfection. He's paved way for sinners to have a standing before God. Dead in trespasses and sin because of Christ, we stand again in the presence of God. <clears throat> but now we're talking about moving forward, discipleship and sanctification. Those are two words that, you, that need to be a part of your vocabulary. Dis Christian discipleship, Christian sanctification. That's the context that we're describing here. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Let me preface the, the sermon this morning, the talk this morning by saying this. This is my understanding of what Jesus means in verses nine, uh, chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. Let's read it. This is my interpretation of that. What, this whole sermon is an interpretation of this. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is there referring to the Pharisees and their way of teaching. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of God. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter heaven. And what he means by your righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees is that your righteousness has to go beyond mere externals in religious garb. Okay? Your righteousness or the righteousness of Christ addresses the heart. You guys with me? Okay? And so Jesus is going to go on to give several examples of that, beginning with thou shall not murder. All right? So let's begin by looking at a couple of passages here. And what I'm highlighting here, first of all, is the principle. How the law of God, under Christian, proper Christian discipleship, should be used to address the heart. All throughout Scripture, how the law of God should be used by Christians to address their hearts so they see themselves for who they really are. All right? And we need to live that way as Christians. It keeps us humble, okay? It keeps us dependent, right? Keeps us trusting and placing our confidence in another and not in ourselves. That's true humility. And this is what we mean or what the Bible means by true discipleship. Regardless of what you've been taught out there, right? And all the activities that tend to surround Christian discipleship. And we'll get to those, all right? We'll get to <clears throat> the externals. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and this is the Apostle Paul giving counsel to the Colossians in Colossae. And he's 
warning them to beware lest they be cheated or robbed through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. All right, so let's just set the context in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. So you have Christ and you have the tradition of men. Paul's saying one is bad. One will rob you. One will cheat you. You won't, be, you won't grow if you fall under this one. And he's talking to Christians, not non-Christians, Christians. He's saying, beware, Christians. Beware, EGBC, that no one cheats you, robbed you. Of what? Your growth, your discipleship, your sanctification. It's all wrapped up in Christ. That's how you grow. That's how you become sanctified. Well, what are those other things that would rob us and cheat us? What do they look like in time and space? Well, that's what he's addressing. You with me? He says, let's just finish verse 9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Now, I just want you to drop over to verses 20 through 23, and now I'm going to describe what the cheating looks like, what the robbery looks like, and what the traditions of men do to us in the process of Christian discipleship. Verse 20, 20, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, this is Paul speaking to the Colossians, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. What he's saying there is, why do you still subject yourself to external religion? Okay, things that are external. And what he's, what he's confronting here is the Judaizers who are going around telling people that in order to be received and accepted as Christian, you have to keep the Mosaic what? Law. Follow me? And what they were doing is they were causing people to focus on other things than Christ in their sanctification and how they did religion. You see? Now watch. Which also concern, concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Now listen to this. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, meaning it looks really wise and good, right? In self-imposed religion, false humility, there's a humility about it, but it's what? False. And neglect of the body, and here's what I want you guys to catch. This is, this is what all false religion, this is what all tradition has in common. Okay? Body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You know what that term flesh there in the Greek is? It's your and I sin nature. See? External religion, false religion cannot address the flesh, or what the Bible calls sin within the heart of the believer. The only thing that does that is true religion, brothers and sisters, what Jesus is teaching back in Matthew 5, chapter 5. The way he's using the law to exceed Phariseeism and get to the what? Hearts. To where we begin to see ourselves for who we really are. Because God's grace and the way we use the law of God and, and the way we understand Christianity and discipleship and sanctification is all rooted in Christ. Christ. Not the traditions of who? Men. So you think of Catholicism. You th ISIS is known for this right now. ISIS is doing everything in the name of who? God. Allah. Right? But you and I know at the core of ISIS's heart is what? Murder. Do you understand? And we need to call it as God sees it. Not as they see it. They're going around murdering people according to God's law. And if we want to use God's law the way God does, they're murderers. It's not holy. It's not righteous what they're doing. They're killing people. And God on Judgment Day is going to convince them of that. Do you understand? And we, using the gospel, need to be, if we run into people that are affiliated with that kind of stuff, we need to be pleading with them and pleading with God. Oh, God, open up their hearts. Show them their hearts. Show them what they're really doing and what they're really made of. They're sinners that need your grace. You understand? Thou shalt not murder. 
And you know who was just like that? And we're going to get into this. Paul, before he became Paul. He was an ISIS-wearing Judaizer, if you will, going around hunting down who? People like you and I. All in the name of his what? God. Right? Because he had a wrong use of God's what? Law. And he couldn't even see himself for who he really was, the sinner, who needed to be saved by God's grace. You see how it works? That's discipleship. That's how we grow as Christians. Right? Excuse me. So the Apostle Paul is highlighting this in the hearts and minds of the Colossians, protecting that church from these... And, it's, and, and there's nothing new under the sun, brothers and sisters. What, what Paul penned in Colossians, we need. We need protection. We're going to go through the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. We need to be guarded, and we need to understand what the issues are here so that we don't get cheated and robbed by traditions and things that are inconsistent with Christ and how Christ, being the sovereign interpreter of the law and prophets, interpreted and applied God's word. All right, so let's move on. Before we do, let me just show you in the text as well where the focus changed. So if you keep reading in Colossians chapter 3, watch Paul's focus. He moves from externals, and he moves from this false religion, and he moves from this false humility and this, this, all this false stuff. Watch where he goes. Verse one, or chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, Colossians, Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Uh, Verse 5, therefore, do what? Put to death what? Put to death your members which are upon the earth. Now listen to these members which are upon the earth fornication. Where does that dwell? In the heart. You know the Greek word for that term fornication is porneia, and it includes all sexual immorality, and not, not, not just sex before marriage. You understand? That's what the word means in the Greek. It's translated here as fornication, but it includes all sexual activity that tends to bud from the heart. What Paul's saying to the Colossian is, Don't be looking out there and all that. You put to death sin where? Your first responsibility, your first mission is to start taking care of and taking personal responsibility for your own heart. You are alive from the dead, believer. You understand? Don't start with trying to go out there and, and, and save the world and do this and do that and do all that. No, you take personal responsibility for your own heart. And you make sure that sin is not dominating you. Romans chapter 6. Turn there with me, please. All right? You know, many Christians think that discipleship begins with something they go out and do out there, external. You know, and it's good. We do need to be getting involved in the church. We do need to be doing external things. But it's a priority. That's not where it starts. Let me show you. Romans chapter 6. And I just want to pick it up in verse uh, 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Same theme with Paul talking to the Colossians. If you died with Christ, right? Uh, that's, that's salvation. That's, that's, that's getting saved, being in Christ. Eight. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, Christians at Rome, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, what does that look like? Here comes the therefore, just like in Colossians. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey it in its lust. See that? Your first responsibility, Christian, is to be responsible for your own what? The proverb says, out of the heart are your issues in life. Guard your heart. The word in the Hebrew means to keep it. Guard your heart, for out of it are your issues in life. See the point? See, true religion, living before God, will focus you on your heart. 
not in a morbid, self-introspective fashion. We have to be careful. But in a way that's healthy to where your sin is not dominating you. The, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, I will, be not, I will not be brought into bondage by anything. He said, uh, food is for the belly, right? And what is the other thing he said? Food is for the belly and something else. And he said, uh, but it will not master me, right? I will not be brought under the power. It will not hold me down. Sexual immorality and, and internet porn won't hold me down as a Christian. My anger is not going to hold me down as a Christian. And my covetous is not going to hold me down as a Christian. None of these heart sins are going to hold me down and entangle me because I'm under God's grace. You understand? We struggle, but we're not dominated by it. Let me show you. Let's keep reading. Okay, Romans chapter 6, verse 13. And do not present your members. So first Paul says you have the responsibility to make sure that the, the, the term lust in the Greek there, in, in, in the book of Romans, that term lust is an archaic term for desire. Okay? So you can just substitute desire there if you want. So your job, first of all, is to make sure that sin is not having its way with you in its desires, you know? I'm a married man, and I desire another woman. I want that other woman. Well, you better check yourself, Ernie King. You understand? All you're realizing is that you're a sinner. But that better not have its way with you. Right? You guys with me? Remember what God told Cain? Cain, why is your countenance fallen? And why are you angry? And God told him, sin lies at the door of your heart, and you better master it. You better control it. Because if you don't, something bad's going to happen. And guess what happened? Cain killed who? Murder. Thou shalt not murder. And he was angry without a cause, right? Just like Jesus says, I hate my brother. Well, why? Because his works were righteous and mine were what? Evil, says John. You know what that is in Cain's heart? Envy, jealousy. And that moved him to kill his brother. See that? And the law of God is the only thing that helps us to realize that about our hearts. You see? Romans 6, do not present your members, that's hands, feet, eyes, ears, as instruments of unrighteousness. You know, my ears love to hear gossip. I like to use my eyes to look at women. I like to use my hands to touch. You know, they say it's okay to look but not to touch. Well, I go a step further and I touch, right? Well, God's saying don't use your members that way now that you're alive from the dead. You understand? You have a responsibility to not only take care of sin in your heart in the lust areas, but don't use your members that way. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under law. You are under God's what? Grace. That's what he's saying here. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under God's grace. All right? We are not under law as Christians, but under the grace of God. And the grace of God liberates us to start seeing things for what they really are, and we start living out our Christianity in time and space. And it goes way beyond just mere talk. All right? It is hard, no joke, life and death battle work. Christian, you are in a battle of life and death. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The Puritan, the great John Owen, said, if you ain't killing sin, sin is what? And you know who he's talking to? Believers. Christians not unbelievers. And he wrote a treatise called The Mortification of What? Sin. We have a responsibility to be putting sin to death daily in the hearts. And that begins with understanding what it is. Well, how do I understand what sin is? There's where you need the law of God in your discipleship program, brothers and sisters. You jettison the law of God, you will become either antinomian, right? No law. And then we look at their lives and their churches and they're all riddled with what? Sin. 
right? People sleeping with one another and, and, and no church discipline being practiced and, and, and all, gossip running amok in the place. You understand? And you're like, man, I don't want to be a part of that community. Well, who does? And the world comes in and it's just like, they're like, ooh, what is this? is just like me. Because we're not dealing with anything. They're, they're like, well, where's grace? What does grace look like and what does it do? Well, we, we just talk about grace here. Well, it shouldn't be that way. Let me show you another verse. Ready? Okay. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Let me show you what the Bible has to say about the grace of God and what it does in our lives. Okay, Titus chapter 2. Like I said, you guys, this is just a, a lesson this morning. Bear with me. I'm teaching you. Not so much preaching at you. All right? Okay, a little bit of both, Rick. Teaching and preaching. Titus chapter 2. This is, the, this is what the grace of God that saves people does to them. In verse 11. This is not my words. This is Paul speaking to Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So this is saving grace that Paul's talking about here. Let me read that again. For the grace of God that brings salvation, deliverance. Well, what does that look like? What does it do? How does it teach? Verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that's what Paul was teaching in Romans, that's what Paul is teaching in Colossians when he says, put to death the lust within your heart. That teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live what? Soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So if we're asking ourselves, well, what does the grace of God look like in time and space beyond the talk? What should it look like in churches? How does it transform people? It's this stuff right here. You understand that? People have hope coming out of the world that says, man, I've been struggling with internet pornography from years. Where can I go to get help? The church. Or maybe not, <laughs> depending upon what the church is doing. You understand what I'm saying? You got men out there who are struggling with anger and making a mess of their lives, right? You, I don't, whether it's domestic violence or whether it's cutting people off the road and, and wanting to pull out a gun or whether it's going, going postal in a, in a workplace. Anger. Anger, right? And, and those people, the sinners, who are not saved by God's grace, hear the message of the gospel and they come to the church and they better see a what? Change. They should see a difference. They should see how grace transforms our lives. Make sense? Now I want to turn you to one other text, classic text, to highlight this principle that the law of God is used to expose sin like the flashlight to help us to see the machinations of sin in our own heart, to keep it from entangling our lives and wreaking havoc in our external lives, our marriages, you know, the way we relate to our children, you know, employment, you understand? Things like drunk driving accidents because people can't control their drinking, right? That's, that's what this is all about. And many other sins that we get entangled with, all right? Romans chapter 7, this is the Apostle Paul himself speaking about how God transformed him. Now, what type of sinner was the Apostle Paul before he was converted, brothers and sisters? Was the Apostle Paul, was he a partier, you know, at all the clubs, hitting the clubs, and, you know, in there doing his thing, and, you know, and getting a drink on, and checking out the women? Was that Paul? You know, smoking the black and miles, and just chilling, hitting the dominoes, tension, you know? Was that Paul? Right? Was that Paul? Give me 10. Right. No. What kind of sinner was Paul before he was converted? He was a self-righteous what? Pharisee. He's cleaned up. He's the kind of guy that you want around. I want him living next to me in my neighborhood. You understand what I'm saying? He's not going to cheat on, my, you know, cheat on me with my wife. He's, he's, he's going to be the neighborhood watch kind of guy. He's going to be a good influence for my children because he's, he's educated and he's got it all together and he's cleaned up. That's the kind of guy I want. But he's still a what? Are you serious? He's a sinner? Well, my standards got to change for how I evaluate sinners then, right? 
And what am I going to use to change that standard or evaluation? The law. You understand what I'm saying? Watch how Paul himself does this. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 12. What shall we say then? Is the law, and he's talking about the Mosaic law, sin? Okay? Or, the modern vernacular, is the law a bad thing? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through what? The law. See, that's not me, brothers and sisters. That's the Bible. That's Paul telling you how to use the moral law. Right? <clears throat> he goes on. For I, he gives a specific sin. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Ten Commandments. But sin, taking opportunity, that's sin working in Paul, he's going to show you what sin did to him as he kept it as a Pharisee. But sin, taking opportunity in his heart by the law, watch, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was what? Dead. What he's saying here is sin without the law, worked in me all kind of what? Death. Meaning, the Apostle Paul thought he was doing God a service when he was killing God's people. You understand that? Now, how can that be? How can we have... You guys understand what I'm talking about? How can a man, Isis, how can a man <clears throat> actually think he's doing the will of God by taking God's people corralling them in, and having them put to death. You understand? Then the commandment came, meaning Paul got under the right interpretation of the commandment, a right use of the commandment, and he began to see himself as who? The sinner whom he really is. Remember when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you? I'm Jesus. I'm the Lord. No, you can't be God. I'm serving God. I, I'm serving God. You can't be God. I'm God. Oh, what will you have me to do, Lord? And Paul, for the first time, began to see himself as a murderer a blasphemer, and an injurious person for the first time in his life when he met who? Jesus. When Jesus began to use the law in Paul's life lawfully and exposed him for the sinner he really is. That's what Romans 7 is all about. Watch. Verse 6. But sin taken opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law sin was dead. Paul couldn't even see it. It lay dormant in his soul apart from the law. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And what he's saying there is I lost my righteousness. I lost my righteous standing as a Pharisee. You understand? I'm no longer righteous in God's eyes. I'm no longer the, the, the proud Pharisee anymore. I'm the sinner, just like everybody else, and I've got to get in line with everybody else. Matter of fact, I'm the chief of sinners. That's what he says in 2 Timothy, right? When the commandment came and exposed him for who he really was, Paul began to see himself as the chief of sinners now, by the grace of God. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. So Paul's not invalidating the law of God now that he's saved. He's validating it. He's saying, you see how to use it? Uh, the commandment's not a bad thing. It showed me who I was as a sinner. It helped me to see covetousness. It helped me to see when I was this, this, this. So the law is holy, and just, and good. Use it, but lawfully. Not like a Pharisee. You see? Two illustrations, and we'll close. <clears throat> the first one I want to turn you to is a bad example of the use of law. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. And I want you to keep in mind 
the language of Matthew chapter 5 and how Jesus talks about anger without a cause and anger in the heart and whoso this and, and how he connects that with killing, okay? Or thou shalt not murder. John chapter 7, 14 through 24. And these are Jews that have been instructed and taught by Pharisees. And they're applying the law and the commandments this way. And by the way, the Gospel of John is all about that. Jesus battling these Pharisaical, self-righteous Israelites, both the Pharisees and their minions, or their people that have been taught by them. And Jesus is trying to correct uh, Israel, and these people are making it hard for him. Okay? Um, so let's pick it up in verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, that's Passover. I think that's the feast that's referred to here. Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters? And you know what that letters is a reference to? The law and the prophets. How does this man know those law and prophets? How is he well familiar and skilled to teach them when he hasn't gone to our what? Schools. All right? Again, this highlights my point that I taught two weeks ago about how Jesus had to be consistent with the law and prophets in order to prove that he was the Messiah to the nation of Israel. Jesus taught the law and the prophets. Just a different take on them. Verse 15, uh, 16. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but, he, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. And doctrine just simply means teaching. The, the kind of teaching, the flavor of teaching that Jesus is teaching in Israel. Whether it comes from God or whether I speak of my own authority. So what Jesus is doing is in challenging him. He says, I know you guys are all wondering if this doctrine is just mine, something I made up, you know, like the Mormon that gets the vision in the room and then he goes and spreads his doctrine. Or, you know, the, the, the person who starts the JW group and they, they hear their uh, vision, write their book, and then they go off on their, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about? Well, G, they, they were viewing Jesus that way. You know, you're starting your own doctrine around her. You're making up your, you're your own authority. This is not consistent with the law and the prophets. Jesus says, uh-uh-uh, it is. But so you've got to be willing to do, obey God. That's what he's saying to Israel, right? You've got to be willing to deal with the hard issues of the heart, right? Verse 18, he who speaks of himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Verse 19, Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? See, obviously they thought they were keeping thou shalt not murder. Jesus is saying, did Moses give you that? Because I'm going to show you how I'm consistent with the law and the prophets. Didn't Moses give you that? You're not keeping that. Why do you seek to kill me? Watch, listen, how they can't see their hearts. Verse uh, 20, the people answered and said to him, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? It would be like in the modern vernacular, you're drunk. Who's seeking to kill you around here? Seeking to kill you. Do you understand what's going on? Follow me? They can't see it. They're like, what's he talking about? Seeking to kill him. Who's around here? You got a demon in you, don't you? Right? But what's really going on here is they can't see their hearts. Okay? He says, uh, verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you marvel. He healed a man on a Sabbath day. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, why are you angry with me? Because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath. See what's going on here? They were envious of Jesus, and they were angry with Jesus, and they were seeking to kill him without a what? Cause. Get it? And they couldn't even see it about themselves because of a wrong use of the law. Now, these were unconverted people, because I know some of you might be saying, yeah, but you're, 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 me you're messing this all up, Pastor Ernie. You know, you just need to explain it in simple terms. People were saved by God's grace, Okay, do this. They see themselves and they apply the law and people are unsafe. Do what these people are doing right here. That is way too simplistic. Okay? Don't live that way. 
because you won't see your heart if you're living that way. That is a tradition that's taught, and you better beware. Okay, I'm going to prove that to you, okay? It's, not, it's, it's more complicated than that, meaning Christians can fall into this stuff right here. You guys with me? And that's the second example that I want to give. Someone who was redeemed and saved by God's grace who fell into this and couldn't see his heart because he lost sight of how to use the moral law. And he became proud and self-righteous and didn't even know that he was on the verge of murder or thou shall not murder. All right? But you guys see what's going on here in this text. You guys with me? Can we move on? Okay, now let's go to the last example, and this is a faithful example. And and, and I could have chose three to four to five to six other examples, even in the New Testament, honestly. But I chose the Old Covenant because I'm trying to prove to you guys how the righteousness by faith and grace was taught under the Old Covenant. And I want to show you how it was lived out by the saints of old. And I want to show you how the New Covenant and the Old Covenant are consistent. And we shouldn't be saying things like the God of the Old Covenant is not the same as the God of the New. And, you know, the righteousness under the Old Covenant was different than the righteousness now. That is hogwash. That's not right. There are differences, but we have to be careful, okay? I can't get into that right now. I'm just, I'm just highlighting something here. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. And by the way, the Apostle Paul does this in his teaching. In Romans chapter 4, he's trying to teach Jews because the book of Acts ends this way. Paul had to go to Rome. He was supposed to be um, uh, brought before Caesar. God told him that because he said, you're going to proclaim my glory before Caesar. And so when Paul got to Rome, he started ministering to Jews there. And he started sharing with them this righteousness, which is by faith. And the Jews were uh, finding it strange. You guys can read about this sometimes because, because they like, we've heard of you and we didn't know that you've changed over to this righteousness by faith. We always understood you to be a what? Pharisee. A legally based righteousness. And Paul goes, no, 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 brothers. No, 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 no. My eyes have been opened, right? And as he began to preach... Read Acts 26 and convince the Jews there. Some received and some rejected it. Some said, no, we don't believe this stuff. And so the book of, this is the context of the book of Romans, okay? So Paul's still doing this. When you get to Romans chapter 4, to, to, to try to convince the Jewish mind of this righteousness which is by faith, he uses two key figures in Jewish history, okay, that should silence the argument, and they are who? Abraham and David. And he's saying both those men understood what I'm teaching you guys today under the Old Covenant. I'm going to use David. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 25. And let me just add this. David is not the example of Christ in this passage. Abigail is <clears throat> a woman saved by God's grace and helps David to see what he's doing. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read uh, all the way from verses 2 to 34, and I'm going to do what we call a running commentary approach, meaning I'm just going to comment as we go. Okay? You guys with me? So let's, let's dig in. Verse 2. Now, there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel, and the, name, uh, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Okay, so this is a rich businessman, okay, that's minding his own business, no pun intended. Verse 3, the name of this man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, interjection here, David is running from King Saul. That's the context. He's fleeing for his life because Saul's angry with him without a what? Cause. And Saul's trying to kill him because Saul is envious of David because Saul knows that David has been marked to be next on the throne. You guys with me? 
So he's hunting David down, and David's out in the wilderness, and David's looking for places to hide and places where he can eat and get his men nourished and so on and so forth. So he comes across this man named Nabal and his wife Abigail. Okay, Now back to the story. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent to him ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him, who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we've come on a feast day. Please give us whatever comes to your hand, to give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your servant David. So you guys see the picture here. So while David was running from Saul and he was out on the field or whatever, his men rested and uh, uh, Nabal's shearers were out there and David's men protected Nabal's shearers out there from vandals and thieves and things like that, right? And David's sitting there in the field and he goes, hmm, since we did this, maybe I should send 10 messengers to Nabal and ask if they can do us a favor. You guys see? All right. Verse 8, or verse 9. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered, and we can see why the Bible calls him a harsh man, evil in his doings. And he sounds like a lot like me when I was unconverted. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away from one's master. So Nabal's viewing David as just like a runaway what? Slave. Okay? So Nabal's missing something here. Just a hint. It was all known throughout Israel what was going on according to the word of God. Watch, Na- watch his wife and how she knows how to discern what's going on here. But Nabal was so caught up into his business and his work that he missed it. He's like, who's this runaway slave? You don't even know who David is? Anyway, verse 11. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers, and give it to men whom I don't know where they are from. Okay, I can be that selfish and self-absorbed too, brothers and sisters. Really, I can. Verse 12, so David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. What's David doing right here? David's been cut off on the freeway. (laughs) Right? Okay? He's like, that's it. Every man go, hey, you guys get on your swords. Right now. Okay? Listen, verse 15, or was it verse 15? 14. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did, did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the field. So David protected them, right? Verse 16, They were a wall to us both by day and night, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all of his household, for he is such a scoundrel that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail, and ladies, listen to this picture of Christ here. First of all, the fact that she's staying with her husband, right? By God's grace. Okay? Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Now that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We're going to see that. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain, I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, 
so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. Now, the last time I checked, according to the word of God, we are to overcome evil by what? Good. David knew this, but he was blinded to it right now because of his own what? Sin. And the lust that rose up in his heart. Okay? He says, uh, now watch how he justifies it. Verse 22, may God do so. This is his theology. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one, of, one male of all who belong to him by morning light. You know what he's saying? He's just like Isis right now. God in heaven is thinking about this situation the same way I am. And I have a right to be on my horse and all the men and getting ready to what? Slay Nabal. Let's go, guys. Woo. God's with us. May God, may God do so, right? You know what's going on there? He's deceived. This man is about to commit what? He's about to violate thou shall not murder. Do you understand that? This is a Christian. Well, back then they weren't called Christians, but this is a man that's been redeemed by God's grace, right? This is David, Christian. It can happen to us. See the point? See why we need to use the law of God lawfully in our lives? So we're not prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above, says the hymn writer, who understood heart religion. <clears throat> Verse 25, or 24, 23. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed to the ground. Abigail is a picture of Christ in the Old Testament here. A beautiful, wonderful picture. And I wish I can preach this right now, because I'd much rather do that. Okay? But that's another sermon, and that's another topic. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. You hear that? Nabal wasn't a righteous, good, holy, good husband. Nabal was a scoundrel, harsh, evil man, greedy businessman. And she's saying to David, on me, my Lord, on me, let his transgression be. Wow. That's Christ-like. That's Jesus in the Old Testament. Do you understand that? Who is this woman? And this is what God is using to get David's attention because David knows how to recognize grace and how beautiful it is because he was under it. Not under law, but grace. That's what you're seeing here in Abigail. Grace. This man deserves death, but on me let his transgression be. On me. Please let my Lord regard this scoundrel, speaking of her husband Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now don't go there, ladies, where you're thinking that, you know, Abigail's talking bad about her husband. No, what Abigail's communicating here to David is she goes, no, I know how bad my husband is, David. But something else is going on here, Right? Verse 26, now therefore, my Lord, she's speaking to David, and there's a reason why she's calling him my Lord. David hadn't ascended to the throne yet, but watch. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord, that's Jehovah, Yahweh, has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand. That's what was going on in David's heart. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. David was taking matters into his own hands and wanting to do the repaying. Understand? And I sometimes want to do that when I think immediately just sue somebody. All in the name of I just want to take vengeance out on them. I see that stuff in my heart sometimes. Do you? Verse 27. 
And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make, he's speaking of Jehovah Yahweh, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout all your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, that's King Saul. Wow, that's amazing how this woman knows all this about David. She's been reading her what? Old Testament, her Bible. She's been listening to the prophets. She's been rightly interpreting and applying them. That's why she recognizes who David is. Nabal, what? Who is this runaway what? Slave. He didn't even realize that God was raising up Nabal, I mean David and putting down Saul. Out of touch, but not Abigail. Right? Verse 29, yet a man has risen up to pursue you, seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound up in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out, because David killed Goliath with the what? See how she's using that? The sling. Just as you threw it at the head of that giant and killed him, and all Israel knows about this. It's like you in Amer- living in America and someone does some great feat and you don't even know about it, because you're so self-absorbed in your own world. You understand what I'm saying? That's how Nabal was. This, uh, David was renowned in Israel, brothers and sisters. This is the man who killed the, the, uh, Goliath. You guys understand that? He's renowned. How does Nabal not know who this man is? Verse 30, And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, that's put you on the throne in Israel, and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you. What, what won't be no grief to you? The fact that you are about to shed somebody's blood innocently and it will hamstring your ministry as king. In fact, you might not even become king. That this will no, be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause. That's the same language that Jesus has used in Matthew 5, right? If you shed blood without cause, you are guilty of what? See the connection? See the point? You remember how I opened when, when, when I said the Pharisee, and you have to, the, uh, was it the Pharisee? Or the person who, who doesn't know how to equivocate stuff in the heart with actual murdering someone. Well, David was angry without cause in his heart, and guess what he was going to do? As a who? Christian. You guys know what I'm talking about now. And see, this is how lust creeps. Sexual immorality creeps in our heart when we don't expose it with the flashlight of God's law. I know that as soon as Ernie King starts looking with his eyes at women, I know, there it is, Lord, got you. I'm not under that mentality or that bad philosophy that used to rob me that says it's okay to what? Look and not touch. I was under that bad philosophy that cheated me and robbed me in my discipleship. And you know what was slowly working in my heart? Sexual immorality. And when I got married, I still continued to look at woman. Do you understand that? Because I wasn't calling sin as God's law was and like Jesus was using the law. No, whosoever looks is already what? That's adultery, Lord? You mean when I do that, that's Jesus? Like, yeah, that's adultery. Then I'm guilty as the guy who's jumped into bed? Yes, you are. Oh, man, my righteousness is... I'm, I feel like Paul. I have no righteousness anymore. Well, great. Trust in me. I'll help you. I'll deliver you from that. But the fact that why you aren't getting deliverance is because you're not trusting me. You've concocted a a form of justifying your own righteousness. You think you're okay. I've not come for sinners. I mean, righteous. I've come for sinners. Do you see yourself that way, Ernie? Are Are you telling me, it's okay to look, Lord, right? Wrong. Wrong. And sin lies at the door of your heart, Ernie King, and you better master it, or else you're going to succumb to a divorce. Or else it might get too big for you and enslave you, and you can't help yourself anymore. You guys know what I'm talking about. And God withdraws his grace from your life and allows you to experience the consequence of your naughtiness. Because you refused to obey him and his law and his word. And you took sin lightly 
when you had knowledge and you knew that this that produces that is sin. You understand? Verse 32, watch David's response because David's a godly man. He doesn't say, you're a woman. What are you doing talking to me? He doesn't say, who do you think you are? Don't you know who I am? Okay? No, this is a humble, grace-filled believer who's being confronted by another humble, grace-filled believer, and he humbles himself, and God preserves him. Then David said to Abigail, verse 32, Blessed is, you, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed is your advice. By the way, here's another term for your vocabulary. It's called providence. God providentially arraigned Abigail to meet David, and David knew that, just like God makes providential arrangements for you and I when we're going headlong into sin, and God sends a brother or sister into our lives. But we still have to make a choice, don't we? Verse 33, and blessed is your advice or counsel, and blessed are you, because you have kept me. David gives credit where credit is due. Blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left of Nabal. Isn't that amazing? See why it's so important that we take God's law and use it lawfully, brothers and sisters? You and I ain't above the law. You understand that? We're not above the law. We who are Christians are still sinners. And we've been saved by God's grace. And that grace teaches us to use God's law to continue to expose sin in the heart to keep us humble, to keep us dependent, to keep us focused upon God's word and his kingdom. You understand that? And to keep you from making a mess of your lives by entangling yourself in sin and beginning to justify forms of sin because you're not using law, and before you know it, you're living all out in what? Sin. See how it works? So... That's why I decided to back away from the text this morning and teach you what's going on. You know, what Jesus is doing, what discipleship looks like. First, we started with Beatitudes, which are issues of the heart. This is who the believer is. This is a genuine Christian. This is what he looks like. Secondly, you need to become skilled on how to use the moral law to detect sin in your lives and in the lives of your brethren. Not in a self-righteous, legalistic way but in a way where we're honest about what's really going on and why we do the things we do when we fall into sin. Amen?